You're listening to Brave New Words, the book podcast that's all about the books, all about the books, all about the books. Hey, baby. And I'm your host, Ed Fortune, and I'm here with... I'm Ross. So it's just the pair of us again today, and we will be talking about... Children of Earth and Sky by Guy Gavriel Kay. And keeping in theme, we'll also be talking about the amazing gum girl, gum luck. Um, no, we... There's G's and things going on here. There's one's about a girl who can turn into gum, and the other one is about more complicated. Yeah, things. politics and in fantasy worlds. So, uh, what we'll do now is we'll play a jingle. <laughs> If you, by the way, want us to promote your show, let us know. Uh, you can get in touch with us at Radio Bookworm on Twitter. You can find us on the Super Secret Book Club as well. Um, get in touch That's on Facebook. Hello. That's on Facebook, yes. <laughs> um, and we've got an Instagram. Uh, we probably have a MySpace page, to be quite honest. Um, Are we on where? AOL? Uh, send a pigeon. Send, you. Uh, send, yeah, send a raven. Uh, we've said this before. Send an owl. Ooh, we haven't had an owl in a while. We haven't had an owl in a while, in fairness, but that's because none of us are, you know, Hogwarts students anymore. Mm. Um, but anyway, so, um, tell us about that book in your hand. Uh, I have a book in my hand. We, we've we've talked about this one before. Way, way back when, when Brave New Words started, we judged some books by their covers. And this is one of the books we judged by its cover. I have in my hand the advanced review copy we looked at, and I have in front of me a picture of the actual book cover as it's now available in shops so we can compare the two and then we can talk about the actual story um that's pretty close yeah so the the, the, the i don't know it's a sort of right the the, the advanced review let's not talk about that I mean, people aren't going to read find that one in shops but um so the the version that's out now is we have a basically it's a picture of the sun in the sky yeah it's basically the art version just prettier yeah um and the sun has a face, as it. It's it, the sun is not a character in the novel. It, it, okay, so I, I, I need to disappoint you straight away. It's. A, I wanted to work. I wanted to find out why, when the sun has his hat on, hip 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 hooray, how that works, because surely the hat would just explode. Yes. Yes, because it'd be a fire. Yes. Also, the sun doesn't have hips. Well, that's not that's uh, just a hip, it's just general hip 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 hooray. Hmm. It's more that those sunglasses. Yeah. Um, firstly, those sunglasses would have to be huge, and they would melt. And if they don't melt, then what they're doing? Well, they're is, sunglasses. They're supposed to protect. Yeah, I mean, if you're behind the sunglasses, then you would be shielded from some of the glare. But surely, also, they they'd filter away UV radiation from, like you know, the rest of the the solar system, and that would be bad because you'd have less sun. Yeah. And also, his hat's on fire, which is also not good. Yes, this is. There, there are many, many important physical issues going on here. Unless the the, the hat and the sunglasses are, as yet, mis- not understood stellar phenomena, 
that you know someone like Stephen Hawking maybe or maybe and if you are happen to be a passing astrophysicist, um, you just happen to be passing by, <laughs> yeah, and and you happen to know how the sun's hat actually works, we'd be fascinated to hear that. Um, at Radio Bookworm on Twitter. Uh, anyway, we've gone off the topic. We've uh, slightly, yes, but um, right. I'm, I'm suspecting that the sun, in, the the face of the sun in question, the right. Gagarin has written a bunch of novels. This is this will this will not displease Dell, who as we know doesn't like jumping into the middle of a series. This isn't the middle of a series. It, it's part. It's another novel of a continuing world, like the Discworld books. It's a book within a world, but you can start with it on. Yeah, um, I, th- I think this one is... Pretty- there are references to some of the earlier stories in this series. I think this one's set about a thousand years after the events of some of the previous, no- a couple of the previous novels. I'm not 100% on the exact continuity. So the the, no- the novels which I believe are part of this previous series are... Gagarke wrote a duology uh, called The Sarentine Mosaic, which is Sailing to Sarentium and Emperor of Emperors, I think. Might be Lord of Emperors. There's a book called Last Light of the Sun, and there's another one called The Lions of Al-Rasan. And Children of Earth and Sky, I I think, the fifth in this series. Um, The duology and the previous novels are all, in a sense, standalone. So while the duology has... It's two novels, but they are are continuing characters from one to the other. These are now make four independent stories, all set within this world. Um, And there are... In the principle of, of this book, there are three major religions. There is uh, the god Jad, who is the god of the sun. There, there are the Asherites, the, uh, the god Asher. I don't know if it's the god Asher, but the followers of Asher, uh, Asher, and Ashars worship all of the stars. They believe all the stars are worthy of worship. And there is the Kindath religion, which basically focuses on the two moons around this world. And a lot of Guy Gabriel's novels tend to have a white moon and a blue moon as part of the theme. And, um, so it's possible that the sun with a face on the front of this cover is representative of Jad, and most of the characters on this novel are followers of that religion. But the novel sort of follows the how you live in a world with this with the politics of yet um, we have in in this there is a city um, which has been recently conquered by the Asherites in the last say thirty years, and it is. Uh, it's been conquered by the Asherites, and the Jadists are not fond of this. They want they want their city back. The story doesn't focus on a war to reclaim it, but it, it but it focuses on the sort of city states of well, we live in this country over here, and yes, that is one of our holy cities, and yes, we're not too keen on the fact you've got it, but at the minute we've got our own problems, and you're facing a war over there. And we've got to contribute troops over there because that's an empire we're dealing with, and we're dealing with this other empire to the west. I'm pointing in directions, and I'm not quite sure why, because this is terrible radio. But we've got this empire to the west who we're dealing with. We've got this empire to the north who are vast, but they're dealing with most of the off- of the war to the east. And we want to send troops to them, and we don't want really, and we don't want to you know get on their bad side. So we're kind of leaving that city alone for the time being. And we've got our own little problems with the pirates who are just getting us, stopping us from being getting across the bay and delivering our merchanting goods. So there's a lot of how money trades hands, and there's how not to lose face uh, and you know the political scandals which are going on while trying to respect the religions of you know all these various powers um, in terms of the actual characters it's a lot of there are quite you know, there are these are small characters who play their part in history but 
it's I don't know, you, you, you imagine a lot of fantasy novels as this is the person who will take down the evil empire and so on. And because of, yes, there is sort of taking down of empires here or there, but these are people who have their own little role to play in it, but aren't the whole of the story themselves. Um, so it begins with a, a city of intrigue. I think this is sort of an analogue to Italy of the Renaissance. Okay. Um, and the, the city is the rules of the city are a council who have their secret meetings on occasion. They are, you know, these are publicly known rules, but they're also some of them in this council, and they make certain decisions which will affect. You know, we are we are sending an ambassador to such and such. We are sending with them a servant who is a spy. That sort of thing. And in this case, they have arranged for an artist, the 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 new lord of the of this far off city, uh, whose name I forget. There is a map in the front of the book, so. During the most terrible radio, I will look at the map because it starts with a map. Maps are always nice. Maps are always map. The city is now called Asharius or Asharius. That's a nice map. It's a nice little map. Um, I'd want a version of that on my wall. Coloured in with yeah, coloured in, but still, Um, it's got a sun. The sun's got a moustache. Oh, that's true. Sun has got a moustache. It's also on fire. Mm. It's the sun. And there are arrows pointing to places where other stories have been set. So to the west, there is Esperana in the west, which is where Lines of Alrasan is set. And there's Anglesin in the north. I'm not sure how that's right. There are six f- consonants in a row. That, but, <laughs> um, that's where um, The Last Light of the Sun is set, far, far off to the north. Um, but yeah, we have the city, city of Asharius, and the the new the new caliph, the new ruler, has said he would like a painting done in the Western style. So in the West, they have sent an artist to paint a portrait. And Guy Gavrioke does this a lot. He focuses on the artists who move around. So in Tagana, he was focusing on minstrels moving around. In the Sarantine mosaic, it was mosaicists and their part in um, historical revolutions, to some extent. In this, sorry, and in this. Nori, we are focusing on an artist. Or he's one of the major characters of the story. Is an artist who is tra- travelling to the east in order to paint a portrait. And he is accompanied by a band of followers who will include some Some of them are spies, some of them are sent for other ends. And they have adventures. So, is it... So, so hang on, is it like <laughs> a fantasy adventure novel? Or is it just... A travelogue, or I'm I'm confused as to the plot. Yes, um, and I'm I'm not sure I'm explaining it very well either. But is it a fantasy bimble? It's it's a bit of a bimble. It's there are elements of fantasy in it because there are uh, there are I'll say ghosts for want of a better word. One of the main characters can hear the voice of her grandfather who's been dead for the last year, and she's been able to hear him for that year. Um, and he helps make her make some decisions about where, where she should go. And sort of act as a lookout, you know, and adds his experience to her 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 story. Uh, and there are other moments where sort of recently deceased people seem to be affecting the roles of characters in the world. And there is a knowledge of this other realm, but it doesn't play a massive role, I would say. So it it links a, a number of characters together in ways they wouldn't have imagined. But generally, it's a sort of it's an alternate history of ours, if, if you like. It says this is. The world of the Renaissance. This is the sort of politicking that would have gone on uh, as you're dealing with, you know, all these major decisions. This is how these, you know, how these people and how these countries sort of lean on each other and how effects happen. So, it's an yeah, it's an alternative world in which 
politics and things still happen. It's you know, it's a way, I suppose, of narrating. So it's not a thriller. There's no political conspiracy or anything like that, or is it more? It's. So yeah, it's it's one of those. It's, I don't know how to describe. It. It's these are the characters who are involved. It's not. This is their story. The, you you occasionally have these moments where a character where you will find out what happens to a character twenty years after the events of the novel because it will suddenly, if you like, have a mini epilogue for that character towards the end of a chapter, uh, and you and that will give you the clue of, yeah, this person's story has ended as far as the overall narrative is concerned. So they have their little mini epilogue. The rest of the characters will continue. So it's so, a complete world, and this is these are major events that are happening. Through the eyes of ordinary people. Yeah, a lot of the bit plays. I mean, they will the the, the back cover blurb. Um, you know, legends emerge is the thing. Is this the? It's an interesting part. sort of approach, isn't it? Where... Yeah, I mean, some of these people will go on to have significant power or gain influence. I mean, the the artist in question at the start of the story is a painter whose father was a painter, whose father was well known as a painter, but has, the father has passed on, and he hasn't had and without giving his son if you like enough time to become well known enough to the world as this is my natural successor so he's he had a couple of commissions they've there's there are reasons why they've not been as public as the you know as they might have liked to have been the son has therefore got, you know got to prove himself it's not exactly a coming of age story the, the, he's, he's you know he's old enough as an adult to know that his reputation isn't what it could be so he agrees to go to the east and paint this portrait it's one of those interesting things that something that I find fascinating about Robin Hobb is that she'll write a novel uh, set in the same world as another world and they mention in passing the events of the previous books and quite a lot of writers will do this. Mm. But when you think about it, if you set a, a novel in, say, during the Second World War, so the backdrop is the Second World War, but your novel is about um, an artist struggling to find love. Yeah. The actual interesting story is the Second World War. Um, mm. And you're just telling another story. And I like it when they do that with a fantasy novel. Where it's like, I'd quite like to read the story about, you know, during the War of the Ring, mm. what happens to this bard who's yeah. wandering around telling a particular tale and then suddenly gets accused of being a ring riff because, you know, he's got a cloak and he's wandering around and he's all mysterious and stuff. Mm. And then suddenly people decide that he's responsible for this horrible thing or that horrible thing and you know his life is forever changed by events that have got nothing to do with him but he's still you know so on my role in his downfall sort of a sort of a book <laughs> oh god I'm just imagining Spike Milligan having written that book but, I, uh, I would love to see a, a foul biography where you know of that sort of sort of kind of you know my role in, in yeah so on my role in his downfall hmm. um, be quite fun but yes so do yes, you recommend it? I do recommend it. Um, it, I say, it is a little bit bimbly because you don't get the sense of these are the great figures, and obviously they don't know they're the great figures of their time. So there's no, but <laughs> then you, but there isn't, a, you know, there isn't that sense of well, this person's on the main cast. This, this person's, you know, this person's got a, a credit as the main as a regular in the series. Therefore, they must be important. It's because of, no, they're, they're just as important as everybody else. It's just that none of the others realise they're not on the, you know, the the, the dramatis person at the beginning of the novel. It's a damning thing, especially about the modern age. It's a damning thing you can turn around to someone, isn't it? It's just like, you do realise you're not a major character. What? But I'm making a lot of noise on the internet. Yeah, he's still not a main character. This guy who who's just, you know, discovered the, the cure for this, 
or this person who's quietly getting on doing this sort of work history remembers them you're just a guy who posted a car show and annoyed people or whatever yeah but the, the nice thing about sort of the fantasy worlds like this is that you can tell the, the story how you want to you're not forced to tell it as it happened historically so you, this is a story which is influenced by renaissance it, you know, Mediterranean I'm, I'm assuming from the from among things the map and you know description of coastal seas and things but um you don't have to you know if it was was a second world war story you don't have to worry about it. well the story is okay we're getting to this point in 1945 where we really want to tell sort of the winter of the continuing war in 1945 and into the war of 1946 because yeah but you can't do that the second world war ended in 45 yes but it's my novel <laughs> <laughs> And so, yeah, by setting it in a in an alternate world like that, you can get away with it. Is the problem with Kerry Greenwood's novels is she's written herself into a corner because the books are supposed to end before the Great Depression starts, right? And unfortunately, she's now got like two months left, and it's just like get some more medicine because it's about to end, <laughs> sort of thing. But yeah. Um, so, uh, good read, long read. Uh, it's a long read. read. It's it's taken. Well, it, it, we when when did the first Brave New Words come out? We second. To be fair, it's not this book which has taken me this long to get around to reviewing it. I've been trying to read some other Guy Gabriel K novels which I haven't managed to. Which have been you know, I bought uh, River of Stars and it'll be on his oh. previous list. River of Stars was the, an Under Heaven, and I, I've, I've managed to read one of those, and then I'm halfway through the other one, and I've gotten a bit stuck, which is why I switched to this novel to see where 500 to 600 pages, depending on the edition, and too heavy to comfortably balance on a bunny rabbit, I think is how we can describe that. Uh, that, that's a, that sounds like a scale that will become useful in more, more than one episode. I, I suspect there's going to be an ongoing scale of. Can we come? Uh, talking of books that we can comfortably balance on a bunny rabbit. Though it doesn't like the smell of this one, um, that was a that was a crafty segue. And it, I enjoyed it very much, and you should do it again. Yes, thanks for thanks for pointing that out. Um, <laughs> but yes, so I've got in my hand the gumazing gum girl in a, her adventure. Gum luck. Um, this is this a pun on dumb luck? Is it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, when Gabby Gomez chews gum, something gumazing happens. Oh, she turns into a stretchy, super sticky superhero. There's just one problem: Gabby promised her parents that she'd never chew gum again. I know, but it's Banana Man, but with a girl and parents. It's Bubblegum Girl. Yeah, it's <laughs> the Gumazing Gum Girl. What are you talking about, Banana? Basically, but there's a new villain <laughs> in town cooking up an evil recipe for revenge. Will Gabby be able to tell her parents the truth and save the day, or will she be able to give up gum and her life as a bubble-blowing superhero for good? Road Montezuma um, delivers another flavour-packed adventure, bursting with humour and suspense. Get ready for the one, the only Gum Girl. So this isn't. Entirely the opposite thing. <laughs> it's not. It's not even the opposite thing. It's in, in a different shelf, in a possibly yeah. a different shop. It's a kids' book, um, as we can tell, uh, because it's a kids' book. It smells of bubblegum. It smells of bubblegum. Um, That's amazing radio. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, we've just put the pages at the <laughs> microphone, and yes, it smells of bubblegum. And it's it's it's, it's about Gabby's amazing powers. It's um, in colour. It's it's in it's pink. It's a pink. It's very pink. Um, but yes, uh, she drives a part. Her, her father is unfortunately a dentist who's always checking for, you know, cavities. 
which is unfortunate because when she chews gum, she gets the power of gum. Right. So she's stretchy, she's malleable, she's practically indigestible, um, she smells delicious, uh, and she's got super stretchy gumming up works powers. I was going to say, if, if she has been chewing gum, I'm not sure it would require a dentist to be able to tell that she's been doing so. But yes, she can blow. I've just flipped to the transformation scene where she pops it into her mouth. Nom 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 nom. And there are lots of illustrations. It's a very it's a very illustrated novel. So essentially, and, and she is in black and white up until the moment where she. No, no. Yeah, she's it, black, she's basically she's black and white, and she's and then she chews, and she suddenly and she becomes, becomes pink. more pink, and then she blows Whoosh. blows a huge bubble gum, and then she jumps into the bubble gum. And then she's the amazing gum girl, and she's all gummy. Um, and then she can stretch and turn a ball of gum, and she can stop a speeding car by gumming up its works because she has gum powers. And there's a picture of her being hit by a banana because she's being attacked by monkeys. Um, and yes, banana man, the villain. They're <laughs> monkeys. There's a rhino in this one. There's a rhino on the run, but oh no, she doesn't have access to the gumballs. Oh no, the the monkeys are eating the gum and they're flinging them at her. Um, she's got to find a gumball machine. She's got to find a gumball machine, otherwise her powers won't, won't work. Because the news agent is bandering because her parents have sent a note. Exactly. <laughs> uh, she 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 can't. <laughs> There's a giant robot. She's going to have to gum it up. Luckily, she's in her gum mode, otherwise that would have been hor- horrible and not. Yeah, that would be a yeah. Um. So yeah, it's the amazing Gum Girl. Is this a standalone? I uh, know this is a series. Okay, um, there will be more. Which is this one? Uh, but is this the, the first? This is Gum Luck. Um, oh, there is a two on the spine. I've noticed. There, there is another one, uh, which is amazing. Uh, amazing Gum Girl, choose your destiny. <laughs> is that interactive? It's not. Um, I am. I, I am hoping that someone will create choose your own adventure. However, for this book, um, it's on Hyperion Books. It's by Disney, and it's everything we kind of expect from modern Disney. To be honest, um, there's a touch of foreign language in there. There's a touch of there's. It's fun, basically. It's a fun kids book. Uh, is it like Halo? No, Halo's kind of a different sort of cheeky fun, but it's the same sort of thing. Um, yeah, from the from the looks of this, I think this is aiming a little bit younger. I think Halo was a. L- Halo no. is aimed at eight to upwards year olds. This is maybe a little bit younger. Yeah, um, not the kind of people who. Because Halo was a bit aimed at sl- people who know there's some humour for that's slightly older than them. Yeah, yeah the, this, a book that's slightly more suitable for for the, the an older audience as well. Yeah. This um, looks a bit more directly for for the kids. This me. is more the book that you can get a kid to start reading it because you go, it smells of gum. Look, it's it's got a gummy smell. Um, it has. It's got a gummy smell. It's all gummy. And it's smell. better than you. Know, that other thing that smells of gum, which is gum. Yes, I quite like gum, but it's bad for your teeth. Well, no, no, yeah, that's my point. It's, it's, yeah. This is this what you can if they if they get off the, on the smell of gum, they can have this instead of the gum. So the fact that her arch nemesis appears to be a chef and a giant chef robot, because obviously the arch nemesis of appetite uh, of appetite suppressant gum is cooking. No, that doesn't make sense. I don't care. It's fun. It's, it's silly. fun, yes. It's very the bad guy. <laughs> um, and the bad guy is a comedy chef, which is... With monkeys and a rhino. With monkeys and rhino. His monkeys and also rhinos. I have picked up the wrong device. Um, shall we talk about books that are coming out? We can do. 
So, um, there are obviously there are always plenty of books that are coming out. Um, they keep doing that. It's shocking, isn't it? You think they, 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 they've learned keep it in the closet. No, <laughs> no, don't keep don't keep your books in the closet. You keep towels in the closet. Put the books on the shelf. Yes, right. So, what's coming out? Um, Assassin's Fate fits in the full book three by Robin Hobb. Um, is the third part of her latest series, which involves Fitz and the Fool, and this is the one that starts to tie together the Land of the Elderlings, uh, the whole stuff from the Life Ship Traders books, uh, what's going on with the dragons and the the Life Ship Wood stuff, all of that. Um, uh, essentially, Fitz is going to head towards the Rainwild River onto the Power Isles. All of that, all will finally be revealed. Also, lots what, of threads weaving together. What the heck's going on with B, which is his daughter? <laughs> the whole shebang. Um, finally, 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 towards the end. Which is cool. Mm. We talked about this on the last show very briefly. Buren and Luffyan all coming out um, by J.R.R. Tolkien. Still releasing books to this day, despite the fact that he's been dead for some time. Yeah. Um, actually, it's been edited by Christopher Tolkien, his son, who mm. is also his archivist, and it's been illustrated. It's illustrated by um, Lord of the Rings uh, movie illustrator and general illustrator Alan Lee. Now, Beren and Luthien, if you're a massive Tolkien fan, you already know this. Uh, Beren and Luthien on the um, gravestone of Tolkien because he's buried next to his wife. Right. Um, is um, Buren and Luthien. Okay. Buren and Luthien being the great love story of the the Middle Earth saga. He told the story many, many times in many, many different ways. But it's essentially the story of a um, human mortal man who falls in love with an elvish princess. Okay. And their love story and their separation and their heartache. Um, and yes, it's repeated. As yeah, and I was just wondering whether or not it was sort of, I don't know what the phrase based on a true story, I wasn't thinking sort of um, allegorical Totally in, totally in It's not, it's not a sort of totally analogy in, for his, his relationship with his wife Totally in mood, his, his, the woman who had become his wife and um, there were complications um, where essentially they were very young hmm. um, her, her guardian essentially forcibly separated them he went off to serve in the war came back and he basically said still love you and she was like well kind of in the process and they ended up together long mm. story short they ended up together there's more to it than that but mm. you know, it's worth finding out the story yourself to be honest rather than me bimbling on and saying this happened and that happened probably getting some of the facts wrong but yeah they, it's, it, he had in his life an actual love story that was how he met his wife, and it's clearly the inspiration for the the great layers and love stories that he wrote yeah. into his work. That was yeah, that was basically the question I was asking. Um, Tata Damalian, uh, which is by uh, Sylvia V. Linsett and Remus Stein, is coming out in May as well. It's on Unbound, which is Unbound's kind of like a crowdfunding book service. You like you write right, a yeah. book and you get it printed. Uh, Stuart Ashton has got one coming out. He's got a sequel. Sequel to it's funny. I think this one's called. Flickering ghost skeletons, or something like that. Um, but it's a sequel okay. to old uh, games you've never heard about. Uh, his first book, old games you never you've never heard of, um, is full of 
bad old games, the terrible old games you never heard of. Right. He's doing a sequel, which is terrible old games you never heard of too. And it's eight bit games rather than ET and all that nonsense. It's eight bit European console and home computer games. Right. Okay. Because it was during a time where anyone could write a computer game fairly easily if they needed a language, and most people shouldn't have. <laughs> Okay. Yep. So the, the, there's an awful lot of very badly designed, very badly thought out games, which people can be appropriately hilarious about. Um, Tatamalian, uh, anyway, is also on Unbound. Uh, it's a post-apocalyptic book, um, but it's like a post-apocalyptic fantasy folklore novel. So it's like it's, it's kind of like the way it, I was looking at Tatamalian, and the way it looks like is it looks like a series of prog rock covers. Where it's like a post-apocalyptic world, which is turned into a fantasy world, sort of a thing. Okay, like everything has become twisted and strange, so it's, mm. it might as well be a fantasy world. And you've got your know, weird mutant mus- mushrooms and this sort of thing. And the <laughs> tale is apparently weird, and mm. it looks good. Uh, talking of weird, there's Waffle Weird, which is the uh, a tale of a British town uh, that's been left alone by since uh, Elizabeth the first. Okay. So it's been left to its own devices. And it's just kind of this weird kind of twin pixy, incestuousy, weird kind of town where people go and vanish. And art is strange and things are strange and there's a murder, obviously. Hmm. And it all gets very, very odd. Um, talking of something that is not that odd. Um, Porn, uh, the Chronicle of Sybil's War, uh, is the latest Timothy Zahn book. Right. Um, Timothy Zahn just poops out novels these days. He always has. Uh, this one is kind of fun, though. So, bunch of kind of space bums, two space bums. Right. Get looking for a job. Get a job. Um, in, um, in this alien spaceship called the the Fiantha. Um and it's chilling out but it turns out there's this really kind of complicated politics within the spaceship and they become the kind of because they're the only humans they become the focus for all this sort of weird alien politics and hmm. stuff going on and all they kind of want to do is chill out and have a quiet life so it's sort of sense it's the first of a series and it's called Porn so presumably they um, they are people who are moved by events that they cannot control right but, but it's Timothy's on so it's going to be space opera at the same time so hmm. Hmm, kind of Kind of like almost the opposite of Guy Gavriel K from the sense of things, but there we go. Um, Chris Ritt has written a new Black Library novel. Ooh. Uh, it's coming out in for me. It's called The Carrion Four: Vault of Terror. Um, yes, so Black Library Black is Library. sort of back in the sense that, right, as I understand it, Black Library had some management issues. Has had has had some management issues for the last couple of years. So whereas it used to have this massively impressive kind of bunch of books coming out, and there were books coming out, and they were all, well, most of them were really good and really interesting, and there was this kind of big, chunky back catalogue of interesting stuff. Yeah. And now it's kind of gotten a bit... The, 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 the fire went out, really. It did for a little while. They've, they've, they've been mining the idea of, let's bring out a limited edition version of a book we sold, we, we first released a decade ago. Uh, but we'll bring out a, a lovely trilogy version with, with love, gorgeous looking hardbacks um, and I don't know whether that's part of the, the this, this 
the the management or the issues or the the fixing of it. I think it was a nice way of making your quarterly report look more profitable than it might have actually been. Um, they did seem to have a startlingly reluctance to play, pay a certain quality of writer. If you say, I mean, they tend to pay quite low for they 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 did a talent scan, mm. and and the thing about really talented writers is once they get printed a couple of times and do work for hire, they then go on to write for other people for better money, mm. and quite a bit of that happened. And the worlds are really interesting, and the worlds are really good. It's it's not clear how many of those authors may have also gotten caught up in this management issue because I've, yeah. I've read about some of the stories here. Some of them, some of them do seem to have just but gotten, names names haven't been mentioned. Some of them do seem to have just gotten fed up with it and then moved on to other things, which is a pity because they had some really good stuff. But it's nice to see Chris Rate back. Mm. Um, it's nice to see this is a book set with the Inquisition and set on Earth. So it's nice to see you don't really get many books set on holy terror. No, they're they're doing that with a couple of things I think in the near future. And they're slowly but surely starting to bring the brand back, brand back and hire new talent. I understand that pretty much the people behind it are almost all different now as well. Oh, so okay. a lot of people have moved on to other things. Hmm. So interesting and exciting things for Black Library. They could, if they can resurrect the spark they had. Where they were genuinely interesting, doing genuinely new stuff in tie-in fiction, which was unheard of, that'd be really exciting. Yeah. If it continues to be writing projects for people who are already staff members of Games Workshop and essentially elaborate toy adverts, I'm still not interested. Um, there's some amazing books that they've done that I really love. And I think are fantastic, and there are some books that are out there that are essentially commercials for the latest Warhammer model yeah we we possibly could do with the, devoting an entire episode to discussing this kind of thing we could do uh, we could get around what we should do is read a whole load of the new stuff a whole load of the old stuff and see if we can interview Ian Watson that'd be fun <laughs> that would please them immensely well he doesn't work for them anymore because he's That's more interested in writing really weird science fiction um um all the books that are coming out, um, talking of weird science fiction, no, it's not really. It's not science fiction at all. I'm just looking at what else I've got here. Uh, Slain, the Britannia Cult Chronicles, Psycho Pump. More Slain. More Slain yeah. all the time, 2018. Slain. Mm-hmm. Guy of an Axe. Punching stuff. Always entertaining. So is that novels or, or it's, comic books? Comic book. It's yeah. a comic book. Uh, there have been Slain novels. There have been, actually, haven't there? Uh, have there been? There's yeah, because you know, because when 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 Solaris was an extension of Black Library was oh, being yeah. part of the publishing, they did slain novels, I think. Yeah, they did Judge Shred novels as well. Al Ewing wrote some Judge Shred novels that were surprisingly good. I say surprisingly good. Al Ewing's really good, but mm. you know, you'd just kind of be expecting something more pulpy, and he actually got really into it. Uh, Sarah Lotz is a new horror novel. It's called The White Road. It's about a guy called Simon Newman who's a extreme sports person and they look out on YouTube and do some really cool extreme sports stuff and become really famous and then they decide to um, do an Everest journey. Right. The book's called The White Road and the reason it's called The White Road is because the path of Everest is strewn of corpses. Yep. Um, as, as people go up there and fail. Mm. Yeah. So, yeah, Sarah Lotz, though. Sarah Lotz is very good with death. 
and she tends to put death front and centre in her novels. She's a horror writer. Okay. Um, and she's one of those things, because we've talked about this before, but one of the, the differences between... Because horror and crime are the same genre, just different ends of the same spectrum. Because mm. the genre is death. Yes, one of, one of them tends to be before it happens, one of them tends to be after it happens. Ish, but it's more our relationship and our fear of death. So, hmm. um, so The White Road is a book that has death front and centre because it's about a guy who's about to go up a mountain whilst also being haunted, it seems. Okay. The implication is that there's something else going on in his life hmm. and it sounds like a haunting or it might not be, he might just be crazy. It sounds like that sort of angle. Right. From the blurb, that's what the angle sounds like. I really like... Um, so there were lots of stuff we reviewed uh, the three a while ago that was quite good um, but and this is not the four so that's disappointing <laughs> but yeah it's kind of she tends to take very creepy concepts and then put them front and centre hmm. and then the rest of it it just makes you go bah! quite good and she's very good at that sort of thing in a very kind of practical sort of way um, but yes um, horror horror is all stories about death crime novels are stories about death there's normally a murder in them mm. um, they're just different approaches to the same thing because um, horror and crime are also things that can be mixed into anything yeah um, so there's, there's not that much superhero horror that's that front and centre that I can think off of the top of my head if you can think of any write in yeah at Radio Bookworm I'm trying to think there's, there's there is stuff out there hmm. but I wouldn't call it a horror story. I'd call it a superhero story with horror elements. Whereas, you know, there's not really... I mean, you, you okay, you kind of get the Green Lantern stuff where you've got lots of zombies and this sort of thing, and you get Marvel zombies. But well, I was that, thinking of Watchmen and Nuclear War, but... Yeah, that's a strong horror element, isn't it? It's pretty, yeah. pretty dark. Um, but it's a superhero story first, and it just feels... Yeah, that's actually an interesting point, isn't it? Everyone's like... Oh, the Watchmen's really grown up. Yes, that's a horror story. Hmm. It's actually still a genre. It's not changed that much, except that's being incredibly unfair to Alan Moore, uh, I suppose. But I don't mind being unfair to Alan Moore, to be quite honest. He's an incredibly talented, incredibly storied, incredibly you know well-known author who can who can produce anything he wants and have it sell. I'm quite happy to be unfair to his work. Some of it's rubbish. Miracle Man is pants. I just want to say. By the way, it's it's all right for its time, and it was groundbreaking for its time. But it, he he was very lucky that it wasn't reprinted for a very long time. Miracle Man, we'll do a show on Miracle Man, and I'll talk about Miracle Man at length. But I'll have to reread it again. But yeah. the th- thing is, Miracle Man, um, Marvel Man was a superhero character from the sixties, and very childlike, very kind of fun. Mm. Um, and Alma was essentially hired to to do a grown up version. And he did a grown-up version, and it's interesting, and Watchmen is better. Right. And there's a bit of Margaret Thatcher that doesn't really make sense, and it's a bit childish. Um, and it's all right, but it's not brilliant, if mm. you see what I mean. And it also kind of pulls the ball from your eyes as to the trick, because Alma is all about the remixing. Yeah. Uh, Grant Morrison is all about the fresh beats that are very familiar. He takes your grandfather's beats... And then puts a better backing track to them. Alan Moore just takes the old songs and remixes them. He's just a remix artist. Um, 
and there's that conversation about because Grant Morrison and Grant Morrison normally do very similar things and some people think that Grant Morrison is brilliant because he's taking old tunes and made them fresh and other people think that Alan Moore is brilliant because he's taking old he's taking things that you've never heard of and made them amazing it's the same thing really just slightly different styles but that's a different conversation and of course feel free to say that I'm wrong at Radio Bookworm on Twitter and all the rest of it as well. We should say for the sake of balance, you should also feel free to say that he's right. You don't have to say that he's wrong. It's well, not compulsory. It's a fair point. Um, but I will quite happily bimble on about, you know, anything. occultism, uh, anything. But, you know, mythic storytelling, magic, and Alan Moore and Morrison and postmodern comic storytelling. There we go. Lecture at 5pm uh, in the bar. Buy me a drink first. Um, shall we... Oh, should we talk to an author first? We should talk to an author. Not about Alan Moore. Okay, so this is a lovely author. Nicholas Eames, welcome to Brave New Words. Thanks for having me. And tell us about your new book, please. Uh, so Kings of the Wild uh, is a fantasy adventure novel, hopefully pretty uh, humorous one as well, uh, that is about... Um, a band of mercenaries that is very, well, not so very loosely allegorical of a rock band. Uh, but they're a mercenary band who used to be the most famous uh, bunch of fighters in the world. They've all kind of since gone their separate ways and retired. And now one of them uh, has a daughter who is trapped in a city under siege, so is attempting to get the old band back together to go rescue her. Where did the idea of fantasy heroes as a rock band come from? I wish I knew. Just one day, I don't know if I was listening to a certain kind of music or something, and just the idea of band band occurred to me, and I thought, this has definitely been done before, and I looked it up and Googled it, and it didn't seem that anyone really, really had, so I decided to tackle it myself. What is it about the mix between... Because there is an association between rock music and fantasy. Where does that come from? Uh, I don't know. I think a lot of it was when you look at a lot of those albums of the 70s and the 80s, their covers, so many of them were fantasy inspired. And two, even if you go further back to pick the bands like Led Zeppelin, I mean, they've got Tolkien lyrics or Tolkien lines in their lyrics and did a lot of fantasy elements. They did a, a Madison Square Garden concert where it's interdispersed, like scenes of them playing with these fantasy scenes of wizards and snakes and crystal balls. So I think it's always been kind of intertwined. Why is fantasy back? Why is it so popular now? And fantasy and rock or just fantasy in general? Fantasy in general. Oh, I think these days just we've had so many phenomenal authors. Like, yeah, we've got people like Robert Jordan and George R. R. Martin who kind of kicked the door open again in the in the 90s and started making fantasy that wasn't very typical quest fantasy, which is exactly what I've written. But uh, we started to have authors like Joe Abercrombie and uh, Scott Lynch and Patrick Rothfuss and uh, Delilah S. Dawson who have written stories that are really like contemporary uh and just well-written and emotional and books that you can give to non-fantasy readers and get them into it anyway, despite the fact that they think they might not be their thing. With uh, Kings of the Wild, did you stop and 
like compare various characters to real world rock heroes. I mean, who is Clay Cooper if he was a if he was a rock hero, and uh, he's the drummer. Well, Clay was probably the most like I didn't exactly have anyone based on him. The drummer is a hundred percent. God, his name's eluding me at the very very moment. The drummer for Led Zeppelin. Okay. I can't remember to recall his name, uh, but so much based on him. And in fact, when I wrote uh, Matrick is the is the the, dr- the character's name who's based on the drummer, and uh, when I wrote his major fight scene in the book, I just put the song Moby Dick on repeat all day <laughs> while writing it. So what's next? Uh, well, the whereas the first book kind of emulates the the kind of raw exploratory music of the 1970s and the in the late 60s the second book kind of moves it the world of itself ahead a few years um and starts to explore what music kind of became in the 80s and what that scene kind of became in the 80s which was at least to me um trying to emulate and do better than the than the people that came before them so things got louder things got crazier they started painting their faces dyeing their hair uh pushed themselves past the limits of what they should have and sometimes paid a pretty heavy price for it um and then a lot of the music too was also very like hard on your sleeve um whereas a lot of music these days is very defensive i find music in the 80s was just you put yourself out there and you didn't care about saying you had a broken heart and that you weren't strong enough to deal with it you just kind of were were pretty open about it so hopefully the second book is moving to somewhere a bit more bombastic uh than the first one and perhaps more destructive how many books did you write before this book was written i don't mean published i mean in general yeah i, I actually just wrote the one i wrote a i wrote a big fat fantasy book um i worked on it for about 12 years all told um, and started submitting it and I got some positive feedback from it but obviously no no uh, takers um, and then I ended up splitting it in half and refining the first book and I actually came up with the idea for Kings of the Wild um, a year before I started writing it in earnest I came up with it, I wrote the first three chapters which remain pretty much unchanged as to what they are today and then put it aside for another year when, as I worked on my other book because I just thought it was definitely going to be the one. And then eventually, while I sent that out the next time, I kind of uh, made myself feel better about getting rejected a lot by writing something new. And as I was writing this something new, I realized that I learned a lot of lessons from that old book. And for the first time, probably, I was writing with my own voice as opposed to trying to emulate the authors who I, uh, who I loved so much. So it definitely felt like a night and day experience. Will you ever return to those original works, or have you learned your lessons and are now going to have to rewrite them? Well, it would probably have to be largely rewritten. I mean, I, I have go back, gone back and read some of it, and parts of it I am exceedingly proud of. I mean, I was working on it, and I was capable as I was at the end, as I was at the beginning of Kings of the Wild, but it just had a lot of flimsy ideas. It was like this this mammoth standing on top of teacups, that couldn't really hold it up. Um, and plus, I pilfered a lot of names from it, so I'd have to change those too. Um, does, does a writer's work ever stop? Do you ever see a point where you will stop writing? 
Um, I think I'll probably always plug away at it. Um, I mean, a lot of it depends on whether, you know, depending on whether I can make a career of it, isn't necessarily up to me. Um, but I'm sure as heck going to try. Um, what I would, I'd really like to do is, like, ultimately write a, like, I'm, I'm able to write at my own pace, um, as opposed to anyone else's, and explore some other kinds of writing. I'm a pretty huge fan of video games. Uh, and I would really, really, really love to write uh, for video games someday as well. Do you think the way we're going to tell stories in the future is going to change, uh, given the way that technology has changed? Or do you think there's always going to be room for a good old-fashioned storytelling? Uh, I definitely think there will be always room for good old-fashioned storytelling. I think around the late 2000s, there was definitely everyone kind of tightened their belts a little bit. Uh, Stories got shorter... Uh, things got a bit more, like, uh, just based on, like, what had go- succeeded before, where I think nowadays uh, people are starting to expand a bit more and take a few more chances um, with what they're willing to publish. Um, and so, yeah, and, and just in general, people love books. I mean, yeah, bookstores took a hit, but they're they're coming back, I think. What um, what stories inspired you to write? Uh, a huge part of what inspired me to write was the book The Lies of Locke Lamora by Scott Lynch. Uh, it was probably the first book I ever read, and I have lots of books that I are my like that I love more than that book. But that was the first book I ever read where nothing in my life mattered as much as continuing to read that book usually i'll won't mind i'll watch some tv shows or read or play some video games and books will i'll read them when i got the time but i read that book and i was just like nothing else matters uh and the same goes for ready player one uh which was a really really huge influence because that book is so much a love story to the things that that writer loves uh 80s music 80s video games things like that and when i read that book i was i just thought I would love to try to write something like this where it didn't so much matter if the person coming to the story also loved those things, but that the passion the story was told with bled through and uh, made perhaps the reader fall in love with those things a bit more. There's lots of uh, franchises out there. There's Star Wars, there's Halo, there's you know, there's a pile, a pile of you know, Warhammer, there's piles and piles of different worlds that people writing and playing if there was a single world that you got to play in someone else's sandpit, what would it be? Um, well, these days I would have to go with good old Lord of the Rings. Uh, just yesterday I found some old art books of mine downstairs and I was leafing through some of these old paintings and, and it was just beautiful and uh, plenty of peaceful and beautiful places in that world where you don't necessarily have to be involved in fighting or intrigue. Um, some odd questions just to kind of round round this all off if you don't mind yeah of Uh, course firstly um, if you got to rescue one piece of art and it can be anything um, and that would survive until the end of time basically the end of the sun yeah um, what would it be okay can I give a slight two part answer on this of course uh, I feel like I should shut out my favorite book of all time, which is Guy Gabriel Kay's Lord of Emperors. It's part two of a series, but I consider it the greatest book ever written by a human being. Uh, that said, I would save 
a Final Fantasy video game. <laughs> um, because I think Final Fantasy, and I've been contending this not really to anyone out loud, but for a long, long time, is the summation, I think, of human creativity. And some people may be like, you're an idiot. But uh, it, there's so much beautiful, beautiful art involved, whether it's the art that makes it into the game or the art that was uh, part of the concept. Unbelievable music. Uh, the only time I've ever been to the symphony has been to see Final Fantasy, and I've seen it multiple times. Uh, and although the writing can be hit or miss sometimes, the storytelling itself and the characters uh, are beautiful, and they stick with you for a long, long time. So I think all told, um, you know, if, if the human race gets wiped out and aliens come and pick up a Final Fantasy game, uh, like Final Fantasy VI probably, for instance, they'd be like, okay, these people weren't so bad after all. If you could write like any other author and have their same kind of level of scope who would that be? Uh, it's tempting to say Guy Gabriel K because he's the, the author who I most admire uh, but now that I've written something that's that's humorous I I kind of like it and I think that humor can affect people in a different way so yeah, I'm going to say maybe Scott Lynch or Joe Bacrombie at their best. And three very silly quick-fire questions just to finish off. Um, Simpsons or Futurama? Ooh, I didn't watch near as much of them as either one as I should have, but probably Futurama. Um, rock gods or Norse gods? Oof. Well, who would win in a fight, Jimmy? Or who do I <laughs> like more? Both. That's... that's uh... Uh, let's go with the Norse gods because they probably did everything the rock gods did but would win in a fight and finally truth or beauty oof beauty Nicholas Eames thank you very much for your time thank you so much they were lovely they were that I'm not surprised we, we never have not lovely authors on but that was really nice and refreshing um I really need a cup of tea. Tea's good. So we're going to go and have a cup of tea. You're probably going to listen to the next show, and if not, then well... But you should get a cup of tea. Get a cup of tea. Get a cup of tea. If you listen to this on the tube and you're about to go into work, get a cup of tea. It's a really good idea. If you don't like tea, try coffee. If you don't like coffee, try hot chocolate. If you don't like hot chocolate, try Coca-Cola. If you don't like Coca-Cola, try Andrew. If you like none of that, have a glass of water. Okay, if you don't like water, oh my goodness, say doctor. Um, I'm glad we don't get sponsorship from drink companies. <laughs> if you're a gin company and you want to sponsor, sponsor us, <laughs> you really should. Cause we're yeah, we, 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 we're very good at uh, covering gin. Absolutely. Gin, vodka, hard spots, but gin mostly. Gin and iron brew, I'd be very happy with. We've gotten off the topic. I'm going to leave and have a drink. So it's goodbye from me, Ed Fortune, and... It's goodbye from Ross. Uh, keep reading and goodbye.